Welcome to the Infrastructure Show. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Schofer of Northwestern University. The Infrastructure Show is designed to present to listeners the reality of America's infrastructure, its condition, why it is the way it is, and what can be done about it. We gratefully acknowledge contributions to sustain the Infrastructure Show from Dr. Robert Peskin, Dr. Raymond Ellis, and Andrea and Ron DeFeo. Railroads interact directly with people and motor vehicles at level or at-grade crossings and along open rights-of-way. Unmanaged interactions between people and trains almost always lead to severe consequences for both, and at-grade crossings are a focal point where major crashes continue to grab the headlines. What's been the trend in rail-grade crossing crashes, and how can we make these intersections safer now and in the future? To learn more about grade crossing safety, we're talking with Ian Savage. Ian is professor of instruction and associate chair of the Department of Economics and director of the Transportation and Logistics Program at Northwestern University. Ian is a transportation economist with over three decades of experience in urban public transportation, transportation finance, and the economics of transportation where he has concentrated on rail safety. Very happy to be talking with you again, Ian. Can you give us a sense of what trends have been in terms of rail grade crossing crashes? Yes. Yeah, so in, in the bigger picture, if we sort of look in a sort of longer term, I would say the kind of the crisis period here was in the 1960s, where you could imagine motorization had uh, kind of matured. And at that time, we were... Um, seeing almost 1,500 deaths of motor vehicle occupants a year in grey crossings. And I think that led to uh, lots of activity in the 1970s, both in terms of uh, public education and certainly public investment in crossings. So this saw 1,500 a year decline to about 150 deaths per year of motor vehicle occupants at crossings. I mean, in addition, there are pedestrians at crossings who uh, are fatalities as well. So so a 90% reduction in fatalities at a time, of course, over the last 50 or 60 years when we've seen the population of the United States grow and the amount of vehicle traffic grow. So, I mean, if you were looking at sort of rates of... Um, Fatalities, you know, you're talking about 90, 95% reduction. Now, having said that, things have kind of stagnated a bit in the last 20 years. So, I mean, I think the last time we saw big reductions was in the 1990s. Any recent changes, any uh, changes that you might uh, connect with the timing of the pandemic? Um, I was looking at the data the other day on that, and certainly... In 2020, there was a dip in the number of deaths, uh, probably associated with a decline in motor vehicle traffic at that time, and railroad traffic as well. I mean, railroad traffic fell by 10 20% um, during the pandemic. So, um, But I think when you look at the data for 2021, things were looking as if they were sort of getting back to roughly where they were before. So you're not seeing the kind of thing we're seeing in the United States in overall motor vehicle fatalities, which the last number I looked at suggested that there's been about a 20% increase in the fatality rate. That That is not limited to rail grade crossings, but all, all motor vehicle fatalities. I personally would say that it's 
probably the experience at grade crossings, if you sort of adjust it for the amount of rail traffic and things like this, would be not inconsistent with what you described. Some work I did um, for a paper 15 years ago showed that events at rail grade crossings were pretty highly correlated with events on the highway, which were sort of any other places on the highway and not just the grey crossing. So, I mean, you could imagine that it's not entirely unreasonable to assume that there would be a relationship between, say, collisions at highway-highway intersections that there are at highway-rail intersections. And I did that by looking at um, changes over time and across states as well. So it's often very difficult to tell this at a um, sort of national level, but when you manage to disaggregate by state, you get a bit more insight. So I would say that, in general, these things are probably fairly highly correlated. So do, what do we know about ca- causality for um, grade crossing accidents? Well, that's, um, there are people and events who drive into the side of the train as well as being hit by a train. There are are people who drive around the gates. But I think it's important to recognize there are a large proportion of the crossings, almost 50% of them in terms of number, just uh, absolute number of crossings. They tend to be the less busy crossings where there are not any warning active warning devices. So an active warning device means an actual flashing light or a flashing light combined with the gate, which indicates the train's coming. So there is just a sort of signs, highway signs, indicating there is a crossing there. These are usually referred to as cross marks. It's the uh, cross sign that shows that you are approaching crossing, sometimes a stop sign as well. Um, So almost 50% of them, there's no warning that a train's coming. So it's incumbent on the motor vehicle occupant to in some ways reconnoiter to see if a train's coming. So I think there is a sort of very complex causality here. And, um, and I think there are many cases where it would not be fair to say that the motor vehicle user is entirely at fault. In fact, entire, you know, I wouldn't, strongly disagree with that right in many cases um, we are putting a burden on the highway user to make a judgment about whether they think a train is coming or not those would be at uncontrolled crossings yes they call them passive passive yes in the terminology so if we focus for a moment on on active crossings and i'm so flashing lights and uh, possibly um, uh, gates are those technologies are those interventions effective or let me say it differently, are they cost-effective? Is it a good investment? As part of some work I did uh, 15 years ago, we tried to do calculations over the long term of um, how the sort of changing of crossings, which you know many years ago were primarily passive crossings to fitting these what's called active warning devices through a combination of federal, local, and railroad funds. And the federal funds are through something which is referred to as the Section 130 program. It's um, terminology for part of the Highway Act, which um, allocates money to these. So I was showing that there was um, paybacks 
on there of at least two or three to one for every dollar spent on grade crossing warning devices. Now, I think within the highway profession, the big discussion probably is going to be is that, yes, we understand that there are very big positive benefits for spending on these types of warning devices. But if you're the highway authority, you're making a decision about spending money at a highway rail intersection versus putting in crash barriers at curves or installing warning traffic signals at highway, highway intersection. So I think that in some ways is the discussion, right? Is it worth doing it at this part of the highway compared with spending the money on other parts of the highway? And I must say that one thing that's always kind of surprised me as an economist over time is sort of seeing what sort of very large benefits to cost there are for uh, lots of interventions elsewhere on the highway to deal with people running off the road, um, putting in medium barriers and things like this. So it surprised you that, the, I, I, may, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it surprised you that the benefit-cost ratio was as high as it was. Actually, yeah, that, that did surprise me. I was always with an anecdote here. I was at a conference in the 1990s. It was in Australia, and there was a paper being presented on paving of the sides of the road, you know, the bit which is often gravel or when you go in. The shoulders. Shoulder, yeah, paving mm-hmm. the shoulders. And it was coming up with a benefit-cost ratio of like 10 to 1 of benefits to costs. And for an economist, you know, who often we're talking about public investment and doing cost-benefit analysis, and, you know, we're kind of surprised when this is even positive, right, to see these sort of magnitudes. And I remember saying to the author, boy, this is surprising. And they basically said to me, for many of these safety investments at some place in the highway, this is not atypical. So I realized that, you know, there are many places in the highway where you could make safety interventions. And then the question is, where do highway rail intersections fit in this sort of um, continuum of places where you would, might want to make investments? So I think there has been some discussion over the years from the highway community over whether spending money specifically on highway intersections in the Section 130 program whether highway authorities should have sort of the um, ability to redeploy that money for if they think there are other places on the highway where there would be greater benefits and costs. Now, I should say that one thing I do think is there are, when you think about some of the really bad things that could happen at a highway rail intersection, in particular, the fact that just the pure physics of the size of the train compared with the motor vehicle user, that this is very dangerous for the highway user, and there's usually bad outcomes. And also the other way that we have seen examples where particularly if uh, the, the highway vehicle was a truck or something like that, where you could lead to derailment of the train, and you could think of all sorts of very plausible situations where you may get derailments of a passenger train or derailments of a train carrying hazardous materials, which could lead to very bad outcomes. So you can understand why the most severe outcomes that occur at grade crossings are things which a highway authority would 
need to be cognizant of. So I understand that. There, you you know, kind of piqued my interest on two issues. One is if you're seeing these kinds of ratios of benefits to cost for, for some of these safety investments, does it imply that we're not spending enough? We're not allocating enough for um, safety improvements? I think as an economist, that would be the implication. And uh, I think um, when you look in sort of broader terms of seeing the number of people who are killed and seriously injured in highway crashes relative to other risks we face in society. I think that's not an unreasonable assumption. Yes. So this seems really important, and I'm particularly pleased to hear it from your perspective as an economist. But then let me take you to a second issue, is, and that is, what can you tell us about the criteria that a highway agency is using to decide whether to put in some kind of crossing control at a rail grade crossing? Okay, so actually there's quite a long history of this. So the important thing happened in the 1960s, where prior to the 1960s, the general assumption sort of from a quasi-legal point of view was that it was the responsibility of the railroad to decide when and where to install warning devices at grade crossings. And that changed market in the 60s, and it became an assumption then that it was up to the highway authority to make this decision. And because the highway authority knew certain pieces of information which wasn't exactly privy to the railroad, and this is sort of traffic volumes on particular highways. And there have been models that have been used to kind of rank grade crossing. So way we should think about this is that, you know, there are about 200,000 grade crossings in this country, in, in America, and of which about 125 of them are on public roads, and the rest are on private roads, farms, business premises, maybe private houses and things like that. So 125,000 is a lot of crossings. And um, to try and prioritize which ones you want to do, there have been formulas going back into the 1940s, if not before. And these became formalized during the 1970s. So the Federal Railroad Administration, in cooperation with the Federal Highway Administration, has a manual for how to rank these things. And there is a sort of a online spreadsheet-type thing where you can put numbers in, which will give you a prediction model, which... And, of course, there's always controversy over this, controversy over could we do better, are the, are the types of models um, based on sort of more modern ways of thinking of traffic crash modeling using the binomial distribution, for example, or the Poisson distribution over something more simplistic? How do you combine the sort of physical characteristics of the crossing, the number of tracks, the number of trains, the number of average annual daily traffic, maybe some curvature, maybe some other geometrics of the highway. How do you combine that with the other aspect, which is sort of the more intangible things, which you could perhaps represent by the crash experience of that crossing in, the, in recent times? So the models combine these two things together, and there's always discussion about, could you do better than that? So, I mean, I would say that the profession has plenty of tools to start trying to rank things, but then always, as in any situation, 
judgments need to be made about, you know, um, is there issues of curvature or the hump, humpness of the crossing or the type of highway traffic over there, which would push something up or down the priority list. So it's more complicated than one one might think, but it sounds to me like on the one hand, you've got this model that's presumably based on statistical data. And then the, the other side of it is, well, if a crossing fits in the category of, yes, we should do something, doesn't necessarily mean we do it. That is, we may not be spending the money in the best ways. We may be using the funds for other purposes. Does that seem like a reasonable description of what's going on here? Yes, I mean, since you've got a um, budget allocation issue, right? And the fact that, you know, we have had this Section 130 program to do this since 1973. So here we are... 50 years on, and we have slowly been dealing with crossings, putting flashing lights up where there was previously just signs, adding gates where there was um, flashing lights before. In the extreme examples, um, putting in a grade separation, which is obviously extremely... uh, Very, very expensive. Very expensive. Happens rarely, but there may be situations where you need to do that, where, for example, you know, you have um, emergency vehicles accessing a hospital and you don't want the delays associated with a train passing by in addition to issues to do with the, um, you know, whether or actual physical collisions at the crossing. So, I mean, this is an ongoing debate and the money is limited and you've got to work out which ones to do first. And being able to rank your crossings. And, you know, um, this is in some ways very public information which people can use to do this. And uh, the profession has no shortage of academics and um, other professions, professionals who think about, you know, how could we improve our accident prediction models and, and our ranking models. Interesting and challenging problem. Ian, is there are there new technologies on the market or coming down the the path of, that might make it easier, cheaper to um, put in some better protection at rail grade crossings? This ultimately has actually been one of the biggest problems over time. And um, as I say, of the public crossings, almost half of them do not have any active warning devices. So they just have signs. So I would say, sort of, what the sort of the grail, holy grail that people have been looking for is some sort of um, um, alternative technology you could use to install at some of these crossings. And you basically face two problems in life, right? Problem number one is electrical power. Many of these are in deep rural places where there is no electrical supply, and you do need this for the lights and the gates. Now, In some ways, that problem has been a little bit solved in the sense that the coming of LEDs and the coming of solar means that you could probably um, install something there where beforehand you'd have to run mains electricity, which in a very out-of-the-way place would be very expensive. But then we get to the other problem, which is what actually activates the gates. And this, to me, is sort of the... A real sort of infrastructure problem here in the sense that most of these gates are, or lights are activated by the train through a track circuit, right? A treadle or the electrical current which passes through the tracks, very low voltage, which detects the 
presence of a train and runs a signaling system, right? And so in some ways, you have to tie into that. So if you're in places where you do not have track circuits and things like this, um, then how are you going to activate this? Are you going to try and do this off some GPS type thing? So there are all these technologies which you and I could easily imagine, but the big question is, is would any railroad want to do this? Okay, in the sense that if you are not going for the gold standard type thing, which is the base off of the track circuits, where there could be the potential for the thing not activating, are you willing to bear the um, liability risk from doing that? And I think just been ta- I was talking to some people in the industry in the last week or so as I was preparing to talk to you today. And they reflected that this sort of, how do you kind of have a low-cost type of uh, technology which you could roll out reasonably quickly to these sort of low-usage crossings? People have been thinking about this for decades and decades, going into the 1980s, if before, if not before. And we really haven't got to the point where we can roll this out. And you know, in some ways... This, this is the great shame of this. If we could only think of some ways we can do this and to think of how we could do it where you wouldn't be creating extra liability if these things didn't work. You know, the solar power given up or it had um, the train in some cases did not activate this. That That is a kind of societal problem we have to get through. It's really interesting to, to hear you say that because what my understanding is the liability of inter- intervening in the process may be greater than the value that the the investor, that the railroad in this case, sees in investing in the protection. Particularly, I mean, such a given the fact, you know, the actual physical installation costs come from public sources and the highway authority as well as local and the railroad are matched to some extent, right? But then there's a question of doing something different here, something innovative. And um, I think many people have spent their entire careers trying to think of how you could do this. And I think from technologically, we can work out how to do this. And the question is, could we approve it? And can we get the, the railroads who ultimately have to maintain and operate this, even if they are not physically paying a lot of the capital costs to actually say, hey, we, we're going to go and do that. And given the fact that, you know, we have still got almost half the crossings in the country, at public roads, having nothing at all in terms of active warning, you could imagine this would be something which not only helps reduce the number of collisions, but also means just for the users of these crossings, even when there's a train not coming, that it gives them an indication of trains coming and then they don't have to at other times when the devices haven't been activated, slow down and reconnoiter and incur the costs that the highway user does in travel time and braking and acceleration at these crossings in their daily. Yeah, it really puts a responsibility into the, the automated system, but it also, because the railroads are responsible for long-term maintenance and, and operation, it puts the liability in their account. Exactly. 
Ian, this is really interesting, and it's way more complicated than I thought it was. You've given us a good introduction. I think we're going to need to come back and look at this again in, in some other ways. I'm grateful that you, you took the time to speak with us this morning. I've ver- learned a lot and um, got to go back and continue to, to talk to you. So thank you so much for talking to us today. It was a great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Infrastructure Show. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, please subscribe to our podcast and encourage your friends to join us too. The Infrastructure Show is recorded at the Studio Media Recording Company in Evanston, Illinois, under the direction of Scott Steinman, recording engineer with a commitment to great sound. Our producer is Marion Sowers, a journalist with a passion for infrastructure. And I am Professor Joseph Schofer. Few people are more curious about infrastructure than I.